With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is the Copyright 2.0 Show. My name is Jonathan Bailey, and I am not an attorney, but I am a copyright blogger at Plagiarism Today, which can be found at PlagiarismToday.com. My name is Evan Sherris, and I am an attorney. The opinions I express, however, are intended to be general commentary and are not legal advice. No attorney-client relationship is formed, nor should any such relationship be implied. If you require legal advice, please consult with an attorney licensed to practice in your jurisdiction. And hello, everyone, and welcome to the Copyright 2.0 Show, episode number 362. I had to think about that a second. My name is Jonathan Bailey, as you can see below. I am from the site Plagiarism Today, which can be found at plagiarismtoday.com. And joining me is not only an attorney, but a man who is guaranteed to make you absolutely jealous when he tells you where he's been during our hiatus, Evan Sherez. Evan, how are you doing? I'm doing well, John. How are you doing? Doing fine, doing fine. So go ahead, get it over with, make everyone hate you. Just just get it over with. I was in Mexico for a week, and then I was in Montreal for two. Uh, see, already I hate you more. I'm just saying, that's all I needed to hear. You know, you never left North America, though. You never left North America. That's very important for absolutely no reason. Absolutely. Actually, it actually is important. Um, well, I mean, not that important. But yeah, I, when I ended up going... Back to Canada and then through to Mexico, I had to pass the border again. Yeah. And then they look and they see I'm, I'm Canadian, obviously, so I have a work visa. And uh, when they were asking me where I've been, the border officer told me, oh, we, we don't have to, like, re-evaluate the visa because you stayed in North America. So really? apparently if I if I had left North America and come back, they'd have to do some paperwork, but no paperwork so for me and I got through in time. Like England or something, it'd been different. Wow. That's, uh, that's, that's bizarre. I agree. But, every uh, time I learn something new about immigrations and border enforcement, I, the, the word I usually describe it with is weird, actually. That's the most common word. Yeah, it is a bit of a funny system, uh, some say broken. But uh, yeah, I had a great time in Mexico. My brother uh, has been married, so we did a bachelor party. It's awesome. And uh, we bought them Speedos and funny shirts and obviously uh, humiliated them because that's the rite of passage when it comes to a bachelor party and getting married. So like, we did a great job humiliating them. And in Montreal, I got the chance to relax. I did a lot of work as well, but I also got the chance to relax in Montreal, which is my hometown, and eat all the food that everyone always misses when they leave their hometown. And now I'm back and I'm ready to talk copyright. Yeah, well, I've got a confession to make. I've never actually been to a bachelor party. Wow. It's, it's not lack of friends, not lack of parties. Just I've never been to a bachelor party. Mostly because none of my friends get married, is what I've learned. <laughs> Everyone at my age is like, oh, all my friends are getting married. I'm like, none of mine. I mean, I've had a couple get married over the past week due to the passing of gay marriage. Ah. That happened. I did, Congratulations. I, 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 I did attend one wedding recently, some friends of mine. 
and, and I've got a couple others planned, but other than that, no, my friends just aren't the marrying type, I guess. I just hang around that's, with the wrong crowd. That's something that we didn't really get the chance to talk about because I was out of town for some of the most significant decisions yeah. of, the, you know, of the decade that Healthcare Act was held up again, and you also had, obviously, uh, gay marriage bans determined to be unconstitutional, so... Uh, we didn't get the chance to talk about that, and even though it didn't really touch on copyright, I feel like anyone talking about the law would at least you know yeah. mention how there's a historic ruling. And so. it, well, I'll say this about the um, just to keep it purely on on the, the legal side right now. I found it very interesting with the gay marriage ban, how the the trickle effect happened with it, because it wasn't like okay, it happened, everyone run to the courthouse now and get married in like five minutes. That's not how it worked. It had to trickle its way back down a little bit. Right. Yeah. There were some procedural issues because once the Supreme Court made its decision, other uh, other bans across the states weren't automatically voided. There, has, there was some procedure when it came to voiding them and then instructing uh, their, their clerks to then comply. And some states moved faster than others. Mm-hmm. Others, uh, even though they had a ban got instructions from their governors to say, okay, issue the licenses, even though the, the process isn't going to uh, be immediate. And then others, I believe, for political reasons, said, oh, you know, we just have to go through the process first in some sort of effort to appeal to their base, yeah. um, which, you know, of course, uh, we try not to get political on this show, but I don't mind saying that that's ridiculous, and I'm very yeah, happy to... Uh, uh, yeah. We don't get political, but I'm totally in your camp in this one. Yeah. Um, and it, the other thing about it I found very interesting that I learned in all this was that um, Orleans Parish, where the, where the city of New Orleans lies, basically, here in Louisiana... I did not know this, but our marriage licenses come directly from the state. We do not have a parish clerk of court issues uh, marriage licenses. Okay. So we had to wait for the actual state of Louisiana, a.k.a. our very, very um, Republican government and presidential candidate right now, Bobby Jindal, to um, allow gay marriage in one of the most gay-friendly cities in the country, basically. Wow. That's... Kind of weird, kind of awkward, but I did get to attend one very lovely ceremony um, here. Got a couple others um, seem to be happening. Uh, my girlfriend, Crystal, is a photographer, and she's excited about this as far as job opportunities. And So, yeah, it, it's been a very good thing for us. But, yeah, I, I realized this um, last week that the first wedding I'd been to in probably five years was a gay wedding. So, there well. you go. Game, there you go. Game marriage is good for the economy. You heard it here <laughs> first. So let's dive into copyright. Um, why don't you tell our listeners what we're going to be talking about today? Well, today we got a laundry list of stuff. We were on hiatus while you were doing your travels. Um, but we're starting off with something that handed down just today, because then I'm going to start off with something fresh, and that's the Blurred Lines update. And this is a very significant update, I would say. Um, we also have... Google being denied by the Supreme Court in its ongoing Oracle uh, Java dispute. Um, almost unbeknownst to me, it appears the Dancing Baby lawsuit is still a thing, and there was an appeal heard on it. That surprised me as much as many other people. Um, the Turtles are now making moves against the RIAA and their uh, ongoing case against SiriusXM. Uh, we have an update, a very important update in the Jumpman logo lawsuit, not an entirely unexpected update after recent developments. Uh, Monster Energy Drink is being um, told it has to pay at least a good chunk of the Beastie Boys' legal fees 
frozen. We have it frozen. We're not going to let it go. Um, we also have an update on the artist wars against Spotify. And finally, wrapping it all up, uh, Google in Canada, a very interesting defeat with possible global implications. So, very, very interesting time. We've got a lot you to know, go through. Very quickly, I would probably characterize the frozen... Um, story as they will let it go because oh, they, they settled. That's true. It was a settlement. They did let it go. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Okay, so let's jump into Blurred Lines. Tons to talk about here, and I feel like we might be on this issue for a little while. Yeah, and I, that's fine. Even then, I we're going to be leaving a lot out. So, big headline, $2 million reduction uh, in the award given to the gay family. However... They were granted a 50% royalty moving forward, which is good news because we don't want to get into a place where damages start to accrue again because there's no royalty in place. So we need a, either an injunction or, you know, another lawsuit. So I think royalties are good because, you know, this way the, the, the song can move forward. Um, mm-hmm. This comes after the judge ruled that the damages awarded were excessive. And they were, I mean, if we'll recall, uh, basically the gay estate made some allegations saying, hey, you know, this song you got, Blurred Lines, it sounds a little familiar to us. Sounds a lot like, you know, got to give it up by our father. And that prompted Thick and Williams to actually proactively sue a decision I wonder if they are starting to regret a little bit now, actually. And then it went before a jury, and the jury awarded $7.4 million um, in damages and miscellaneous to the gay estate. And immediately after that, there was a flurry of activities and motions, and now that's what we're getting our answer to, is to that chaos post-trial. Right. So a few other issues that we discussed last week were also addressed. Um, The court looked at the other parties down the distribution chain, uh, TI, some of the record labels, who the jury did not find liable despite finding substantial similarity, and... Uh, said, hey, this this doesn't really make sense. Uh, and they kind of, there were, there were two arguments. One was that, hey, these people are in the distribution chain of something that you found to be a copyright infringement. Therefore, as a matter of law, they're guilty of, of copyright. It, it's illogical any other way. And then those parties who were not found to be liable came back and said, hey, we've got a Seventh Amendment right to uh, a jury trial and we had a jury trial and the jury said that we're not liable so therefore we can't be held liable so it was almost this catch-22 well the judge ended up doing what is in my opinion a smart thing and resorted to sort of a logical fundamental which is hey if a jury found that this song is substantially similar then the natural consequences of that ruling should trigger which is that the other people in the distribution chain should be uh held liable for their for their parts, at least when it comes to the artists. Agreed, yeah. Makes, makes a lot more sense. And it was really interesting when this broke, because you could tell um, sort of whose side various authors were on by the headlines, or at least who the headline authors were on the side of. Half of them said, like, um, we're, we're linking to Reuters now, where it says, Judge cut 7.4 million Blurred Lines copyright award, and it goes on from there. But some of them were... New trial denied in Blurred Lines case, or something like Because well, it was really at both sides, won some and lost some. That's right. And, you know, headlines 
I, I have a beef with headlines I'll get into when we get into a, a few other cases, uh, especially when they use terms of art. But uh, yeah, I, I also find that interesting. You could always tell kind of what side they're on, or, or maybe that's not it. Maybe they just or maybe maybe they're choosing a headline they that they'll will get the most interest. Exactly, I think that's probably, that's probably more, uh, more accurate. So I think I wanted to talk about uh, two different parts of this case. Um, one of them was one of the claimed erroneous jury instructions, which is basically the part of the case where you're going to tell the jury, okay, the law says this, you need to find either A or B given this standard. And this is always a very contentious issue when it comes to trial because the way a jury instruction is, is worded can affect what they're going to say. And there's so many jury instructions in a complex case because there's complex yeah. issues. So, um, And a good example of how this could be in a different type of case is if you had like a murder trial, for example, you have to find that the defendant shot the victim. Is very different from you have to find that the defendant shot the victim and believed he intended to kill him and believed he was not in fear of his own life at the time. Exactly. Two very so, different sets of instructions with two very different likely outcomes. The instructions tend to, of course, have a huge influence yes. on the jury and it lets them know what the law is very succinctly. So uh, one of the one of the uh, main issues in this this part of the case, right, this post-trial motion period was uh, asking for a new trial on behalf of the, let's say, the plaintiffs, because they, of course, filed a declaratory judgment, even though they were the defendants in uh, the more traditional sense of uh, they were the ones who were potentially infringing. Of course, I'm talking about Thick, etc. So they filed this motion, and, and the standard for a motion is... If the verdict is contrary to the clear weight of the evidence, or is based upon evidence which is false, or in the sound discretion of the trial court, uh, a miscarriage of justice took place. So, one of the grounds was the thick side of the lawsuit believed that there were several erroneous jury instructions, and I've really only taken one because there were several and. Uh, you know, spoiler alert, the no new trial is happening, so they lost on every count. So here's one <laughs> oh, of Oh, no, I had no idea how it ended. Oh, no. <laughs> so uh, this number should be surprising to most listener, but the thick team felt that jury instruction number 43, which is not the last one. No. So <laughs> that gives you an idea as to how many there are and how... You thought IKEA furniture was tough for the instructions. Yeah. <laughs> So this uh, instruction was telling juries about substantial similarity, not the only one, but one of them on how to determine substantial similarity in that particular circuit, which of course is one of the parts, one of the elements of copyright infringement is that in the piece which is in contention, which is blurred lines, has to be substantially similar to the uh, piece owned by the gay family. And so they believe that informed uh, the jury incorrectly. So what this dealt with was the intrinsic and the extrinsic parts of substantial similarity. Now, in this circuit, in order for a piece to be substantially similar, it has to be both intrinsically similar and extrin extrinsically similar. Now, bear with me. I'm going to read you the standards. And then uh, it's only about two paragraphs. 
and I'll, I'll try to skip some of the uh, less uh, essential parts. Okay. So, extrinsic similarity is shown when two works have a similarity of uh, ideas and expression when measured by their external and objective criteria. So to make that determination, you have to consider the elements of each of the works and decide if they're similar. This is not the same as identical, but there has to be testimony and evidence presented that, you know, this theme and that theme are similar mathematically. They're similar from uh, kind of that mathematical point of view of of math. Um, You know, they don't have to show that they're exactly the same, but they have to show that the individual elements are substantially similar and that basically from an objective point of view, these two are similar. Next, intrinsic, is that you have to show that if an ordinary reasonable listener would just listen to the two pieces, they would find that, yeah, these are really substantially similar. So one is more of like the objective mathematical part of music where notes are compared, and the other one is just that if you're listening to it, you know, does it feel substantially similar? So what's missing from this? And this is what the thick uh, camp was arguing, is that they didn't add a very important caveat to that instruction. And that is that when you're making the comparison, you, you're only supposed to use the copyrightable elements of the song as the basis for the comparison. So they felt like not adding that little caveat, quote, invited a freewheeling assessment of similarity based on any and all elements of the gaze work as a whole. Uh, This alludes to this important part that, you know, certain parts of your song are just not protectable. When you're tallying up what's similar and what's not, you can't say, oh, well, they both use a bass guitar. That's not, that doesn't count. You have to take the sufficiently creative parts of the song. uh, You mean I can't get a copyright protection on bass guitar music? No, exactly. And and absolutely shut down every bass guitarist in the world. (laughs) So you you, you generally uh, have to look at that at their more creative parts uh, and protectable parts and compare them. And so they're like, hey, this, you know, jury instruction number 43 didn't have this. So you basically gave them an avenue to look at everything together uh, because this instruction said that if you find that they're both extrinsically and intrinsically similar on these two grounds, liability. And so the judge kind of is comes back and says like, I don't buy this. And here's why. Look at instruction number 30, in which I expressly said, quote, substantial similarity requires similarity of protected expression. Similarity that is confined to ideas and general concepts is not infringing. So he's like, hey, I'm not stupid. I know that I gave a whole bunch of them. And uh, <laughs> you can't just... I gave more than 43 of them, in fact. I, g- I gave more than 43 of them, and you can't just take these in the abstract. And... And, and, and I, I, he ended up looking at a number of other ones. Instructions 25 and 26 also said that. And Thick tried to argue that these were, quote, passing references to general principles buried buried within introductory instructions. But that was thrown out. And, you know, I agree with that because so yeah. the last thing you want to do is try to pull the, the wool over a judge's eyes because they know what they wrote. And I don't think uh, that this was going to work, and it obviously didn't. And so that's you know. that's... For example, one of the allegedly erroneous instructions that was thrown out. And you know, if you ever wanted to have pity 
for a juror in a copyright infringement trial. If you don't have it now, I cannot help you. <laughs> I have been studying copyright for 15 years now. I find that to be about as obtuse as anything I have ever read on the subject. Right. And, if anyone wants to actually read it, because it can be so hard to grasp uh, complex concepts at a paragraph level just listening to somebody. I know that I'm yeah. more of a visual learner. It's on Scribe. It's at page 19. And we'll try to leave a comment to this decision in the YouTube link. Yeah, if we go ahead and, yeah. and do that, John, that way people can go. I'll, and I'll get that done. Up. Yeah, I'll find it in um, the Scribe account and see if I can throw it up there. But yeah, it's. I, I glanced at the uh, jury instructions too and immediately, immediately got on my hands and knees and was thankful I sat on a murder trial, not a copyright trial. <laughs> yeah, this isn't even that complex litigation. I mean, no. copyright is decently complex, but it's no, you know, it's not murders and acquisitions litigation, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, to put things in perspective, this was a 56 page complex decision and the trial ended already. This is just the did we do anything wrong part of the trial. So, yeah. Uh, Did anything hopelessly break during the trial process? No? Okay. <laughs> so, um, yeah. the next, next is the uh, remittitor part of the trial, which is the fancy term for the $2 million reduction in damages. And I'll explain that to the listeners, uh, if you'd allow me, even though Go I know it. that I've oh, been please. talking for most of the podcast. I promise I'll give you uh, That's okay. I'll get my time later. Don't worry about it. I'm just making my jokes as we go. So, here. This is great. Um the standard for the reduction in damages is pretty simple. If the amount of damages is excessive, it is the trial judge's duty to reduce that or to give a new trial. Yeah. And we saw this actually repeatedly in the Jamie Thomas case. Mm -hmm. It's also on three different occasions in the Jamie Thomas case, which is insane, but okay. So I, I learned something, which is that uh, how does the new trial come up? And that is, if the prevailing party, which in this case would be Gay's family, does not accept the reduction, then a new trial is ordered. So I thought that was an interesting. But sometimes the new trial is only on damages. They um, they maintain the verdict of liability, but have a new trial on damages only. Absolutely, that's a fabulous point, John. Yeah. Uh, so here's how damages were calculated. And on the back, pretty sure I have. <laughs> pretty sure I have this, but bear with me. So. There was sixteen point six million in total revenue. Okay. They reported. Wait, wait six, a minute! Whoa, 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 whoa! It made sixteen point six a million in total revenue. That was for all of the different parties. Yes. Oh. Is that more or less than you thought? I, actually, it's a little bit less. Honestly, that song was every goddamn where for a while there. Maybe that's only publishing revenues. I don't know if they took into account all other. I mean, it should be all other, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. Like, do you take into consideration T-shirt sales, which inevitably happen? You know, things. Like I that. don't, I think don't know. So. Uh, I don't, I don't think so. I don't I would, think so I either. But that. still, no. It's just interesting that that's the much they made. So that's the amount they made off the recorded track, and I would also assume the um, the actual composition. Well, this is broken down. Oh. Uh, uh, in the decision, uh, sixteen point six million, I believe covers for more parties than just Thick and Pharrell. 16.6 million was the publishing revenues, I believe, uh, for a, a number of different parties, uh, about five or six of these record labels included. Um, but uh, nonetheless, uh, 
that oh, that's basically right. only cover the composition. Because remember, the, the gay estate can only bring the composition in. That's right. Not so, yeah, okay, that's why the number isn't where I thought it would be. All right, there you go. Mystery solved. Please continue. So, uh, what was reported for Thick and Pharrell was that they made $6.3 million uh, in total revenues for that. That's what they came up with out of their stipulation. Uh, 6.3, sorry, for Thick, Pharrell, and Harris, uh, Thick and Pharrell were found liable, and Harris was not. Even though he was uh, listed as a songwriter. Right. Uh, and that... And 5.6 million of that was Thick uh, and uh, and Pharrell, who were the only two found liable. Uh, so the plaintiffs claim, uh, the the gay estate claimed that this number wasn't accurate, and that and this is this is before this is not in the. Um, I apologize for not making this clear. This is during trial. This is in the yeah. two stipulations. They're like, hey, that's not the right number. The right number is actually eight million, because professional fees were subtracted to the revenue making it uh, lower than it is. So that would be the money you're paying your accountant and this guy before you actually get the money in. And all the middlemen handling the license interchanges and all that stuff. I don't I don't know if all expenses, which would include those parties you're mentioning, are included. Okay. These are the off-the-top expenses that you're paying, like, percentage commissions to. So, so basically I don't know. you're looking at revenue versus profit, sort of. No, it's, okay. it's not that. It's, okay. it's, it's revenue... Um, Revenue minus certain percentage-based expenses, okay. and, and not all expenses. So it's okay. not exactly pure profit. It's just certain uh, expenses are calculated into the revenue rather than not. And okay. you know that's just a question of what kind of deals you're making with people uh, who you're doing business with. So uh, the judge uh, actually ended up here admitting to making an error in instructing the jury to use that eight million dollar figure as basis of damages. Uh, because as it turns out, uh, that, that pre expense deduction for the accountants, et cetera, could only be used as the number if willful infringement was found. And that wasn't made clear on the jury instruction. And as it turns out, the jury found that the, uh, copyright infringement was not willful. So, uh, when they looked at the damage, the damages, which ended up being calculated at four million for Pharrell and Fick, uh, which is clearly fifty percent of the eight million, which is the number they ended up giving. They ended up giving fifty percent. Mm-hmm. They're like, okay, clearly you use this eight million dollar, which eight million dollar value, which you really couldn't use uh, as your basis. And so, what we're going to do is we're going to uh, do two things. First thing is that we're going to use this revenue number after. Uh, the accountants were paid and not the pure revenue number. We're going to bring that down. Uh, then what we're going to do is that since we found that as a matter of law, uh, Harris, the third guy who they found not to be violating the jury, but the, the judge then says, hey, if this is a copyrightable, uh, if this is copyright infringement, then you are guilty as a matter of law. They put his revenues back in, which came to a total of about $6.3 million. So now you're taking the revenues of all three writers, and it took 50% of that, and that turned out to be $3.1 million, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is the end of the story. That's very interesting. So yeah, is it, or did I just bore the hell out of everyone? No, 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 actually it is, because you can see how we, they kept the spirit of the jury decision intact, if you will. The intent yes. of the jury, but better aligned it with the facts of the law. 
and exactly. corrected for the uh, mistake the judge made in the instructions. Because, yeah, the, the jury made it very clear. We think this percentage is fair. And then, I mean, it basically... That's right. Huh? And That's right. And they use that percentage as a royalty. extrapolate out a little bit of algebra. A little bit of algebra going on, but nothing too serious. And <laughs> and you can also see how that same percentage comes back up in the royalties. The That's forward. right. They obviously thought it was fair. He obviously did not disagree with that. So 50% is the magic number in this case. That's right, and more math case, than you ever thought you'd have 50%. to do on the copyright 2.0 show. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, we, we don't math particularly well here. Um, but yeah, so it, it's obvious that he felt the jury was not out of line with the percentage. Like I said, just made an error in the jury instruction regarding how to calculate where the sort of the starting point for that and ran from it there. Now, it's like I said, this is such an interesting and complex decision because both sides won something, both sides lost something. You know, Robin Thicke and company, they won the reduction in damages. Um, and they also... And they also at least got the judge to admit that parts of the instructions had issues. Not enough necessarily to, you know, sink the whole trial, but enough to, you know... Lay some groundwork for pop or possible appeal. On the right flip side, hmm? um, as you mentioned, if there were a big error, if there was a big error based on damages, that would, yeah. you know that that could be a relitigation of damages. But yeah, not you know, it is a sixty-four page decision, and I have omitted several, if not a dozen, new trial grounds uh, that the Pharrell side was trying to yeah, and push that, that was right rejected. Out. Yeah. And on the thick side, and on I'm sorry, on the gay estate side, they obviously won the uh, the retrial issue pretty handily, it seems, and they also won the right to involve more parties in the infringement. So get more, you know, get more, get more parties liable for the infringement. Those are two things they were seeking, but they failed to get the injunction that they were seeking. Yeah. However, I don't think either side's going to be happy about the royalty structure necessarily, you know, because. I don't think the injunction was what they really wanted. I think the gay state won that a little bit. But they were really, I think they were really hoping to bring the hammer down in negotiations. Yeah, an injunction would have been a massive A a massive massive tool, and they didn't get it. So it's a win some, lose some for both sides. And I think what this really does is set the stage up for an appeal, which I expect to be filed by the time this podcast is over, pretty much, at this point. (laughs) <laughs> I think we'll be doing it, doing an update within the hour. At least it'll feel that way. But yeah, I, I fully expect an appeal on this and more to be heard from this case. But what's very interesting, and what I think this highlights, is everyone's been talking about how we're living in dark times for creativity and the Blurred Lines case is destroying you know, the ability to be inspired by music. And I think what this highlights is just how much of a perfect storm this case really was in some ways. It really, I don't think this, I don't think we're ever going to see one like this again. I would be stunned if we did. I mean, what, you know, what is like this is just such a unique case. It is. That I agree with you, we won't see anything quite like this. And it's made worse by all the ways in which Robin Thicke himself, and I guess for Williams too, sabotaged their own case along the way. See, that's what I don't like about this from a policy perspective is that artists will be more hesitant to pay homage uh, and, you know, give credit where credit is due when it comes to their inspiration than their, 
musical heroes be, for for fear of this. And yeah. I hope that doesn't happen. Well, and it, it, it's bizarre to me to think about this in the light of like the Richard Prince and the, the Richard Prince ruling recently, which ruled his artwork to be a fair use when pretty much you know using using photographs taken by other people and just drawing on them. You sometimes feel like there's a lot of chaos in this area of what is a derivative work and what is a fair use and what, you know what I mean? This whole area seems to be constantly in flux. And I don't think this one case necessarily is an earthquake by itself. It's just another, you know, sort of pin on the board, so to speak. Right. This case, as I believe you and I both stated when it came out, was more of an instruction on client management and um, mistakes that can be made during trial and just honestly a cool example of how a copyright case operates rather than any sort of groundbreaking legal concept when it comes to substantial similarity or uh, anything uh, from a legal perspective to be groundbreaking. And at the end of the day, for me, I I don't feel like necessary Thick and Williams lost because they had the worst argument I feel like they just simply got out-litigated. They got out-litigated and they got punished for being on pain meds. Oh. And uh, oh. then trying... No, no one likes when you say something. What he should have done was own up to it. Was said, yeah, I said that. I said I was inspired by Marvin Gaye. And you know what? I was inspired by Marvin Gaye just like dozens, if not hundreds of other artists are inspired by Marvin Gaye. But that doesn't make my song a copy of Marvin Gaye. It was inspired, which is allowed. You're allowed to be inspired by another artist. Yes, absolutely. But going back on his statement saying I was high on painkillers that doesn't sit well with juries. They don't want to hear that A, you have a drug problem because they're not going to look kindly upon you. And B, they don't want to look at you weaseling out of a previous statement because it makes your testimony less believable, even though the things you may be saying for days and days could be for in the trial could be extremely valuable to your case. People look back to that time where you kind of weaseled out of something, and no, I don't think that was a good strategy. Uh, obviously, they didn't have a, a, a concrete strategy of how to deal with that statement yeah. throughout from deposition to trial because she should have owned up to it and taken an, an angle of yes, I was. Inspired I love by Marvin Gaye. Gay. Who doesn't like, love? Who Marvin doesn't Gay? love Marvin Gaye? Exactly. Awesome. Marvin Gaye's amazing. And, he was a great and, and musician. I mean, he's he should awesome. have take, should have taken the high road and be like, "I wish his family would, yeah, you know, wouldn't wouldn't. I wish this was a better, but yes, I was inspired by Marvin Gaye, but no, I didn't copy him. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Well, you want to move on? Let's move on. Well, I don't want to move on because I want to skip this next story, but let's do it. Let's get it over. <laughs> I feel the pain on that one, my friend. I feel the pain. Um, long story short, while the Supreme Court was busy tackling issues like, you know, gay marriage and the Affordable Health, Affordable Care Act and yada, 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 it also announced it was declining to hear Google's appeal in its case against Oracle. And the long and short of this one is Google, when developing the Android operating system, wanted to make its own, like, implementation of Java, which is owned by Oracle, but rather than licensing it directly from Java, basically rewrote the language, didn't use any of the actual original code, but copied the Java APIs to ensure that any application written in Java for other things would work reasonably well on Android. And for that, Oracle sued, and at the district court level, um, 
Google got the court to agree with its argument that APIs, which are basically a set of commands, uh, were not copyrightable. However, when that matter went to the appeals court, the appeals court overturned it. Now, Google appealed the appeal, and the Supreme Court, and this is what the Supreme Court can do, this is why this is the greatest job you can get, went, nah, we don't, we don't really feel like taking that one, and let it, let the appeals court ruling stand, basically punting the thing back, all the way back to the district court. Right. So, my favorite part of at least reading the story was that uh, how they described APIs, which is obviously impossible for us, yeah, as we've failed on many times, was to describe APIs as programs which allow uh, uh, other programs to communicate with each other in an organized fashion. So I think I'm going to stick with that. Yeah, okay, fair enough. <laughs> uh, so as you mentioned, yeah, basically they were initially found not copyrightable due to... Uh, the use of utilitarian and functional set of symbols. This alludes to uh, utilitarian uh, concepts in copyright law. So, just really briefly, certain things, if what's they're known as a useful article is an object that has sort of intrinsic utilitarian function uh, that's not part of its design, and those are basically not eligible for copyright. And so what they were saying is that these particular order or use of these uh, symbols uh, were utilitarian in nature. But that was reversed, as you said. And the denial of certiorari is a huge victory for copyright copyright software, the copyright of software and software companies and proponents of of the software. Of software, yeah. (laughs) So uh, that's all I really have to say about this story. Uh, And... uh, and, uh, it's not really uh, something uh, I'm really tapping into. One thing, into, I'm gonna, so. one thing I do want to add to this story, though, is everyone is when this happened, everyone ran around like Chicken Little saying the sky is falling, APIs are copyrightable, everyone's going to be suing everybody and all this. And to which I responded saying, if you go back to the district court proceedings, as you would expect, Google put up a variety of defenses as to why it was not an infringement for them to use the APIs. They said it was not copyrightable. They also argued, though, that it was a fair use. And the fair use defense never even got heard because it was completely rendered moot by the idea that APIs were not copyrightable. Never had to touch it, never had to listen to it, never had to hear it, never had to think about it. It just didn't come up. Well, now it's going to come up. And if API, if the use of an API in this context is ruled to be a fair use, then... Realistically, it has almost the exact same function and exact same practical application because if using an API is not infringing in this case, there's not going to be many cases where it is. Where it is, you know, this is as far afield as one can typically think of this type of stuff. Literally rewriting an entire language. So, I don't know. I I think before we say the sky is falling, we should see what the district court has to say. Yeah, well, I'll, I guess I'll talk to you in uh, six years. Well, yeah, a few years. <laughs> All right, the dancing baby case. The, yeah, th- it's still a thing. Still a thing. We have a uh, mother who is videotaping her baby getting down to Prince dancing and puts it on YouTube. It gets up to uh, a mind blowing 233 views, I think the story said, before Woo-hoo! it is taken down. Uh, 273 views, but yeah. 273 views, excuse me. 
uh, it should be disbarred. Uh, before before it's taken down due to a uh, DMCA takedown notice, which of course is the process in which a copyright owner can ask that any media hosted by a third party that contains their copyrighted material be taken down because hey, I own that, and you know this is the mechanism that the DMCA gives them to have these things taken down. So it gets taken down. And uh, what happens next, John? Well, major headache happens next. Now, Lynn, the mother, named, her last name is Lynn, her name is Stephanie Lynn's, she, A, files what's known as a counter notice, which is where basically you copyright holder files a copyright notice saying, hey, that's mine, take it down. And basically the counter notice is legal for uh-uh, or <laughs> otherwise it's not <laughs> infringing. <laughs> no. Um, and basically got the work restored. Now, the work was restored just fine. No further action was taken by... Um, no further action was taken by Universal Music Group in this case, and it seemed like the issue was pretty dead. Ninety-nine times out of nine hundred ninety-nine, nine ninety-nine times out of whatever, you know, this is where it ends. But in this right. case, the Electronic Frontier Foundation and others got involved on Lynn's behalf and filed a suit against Universal Music, alleging that Universal Music knew that the video was not actually infringing Prince's copyright or the copyrights that they hold. And ordered the takedown anyway, essentially filing what a, a false DMCA takedown notice. And that was eight years ago. <laughs> yes, so just to clarify, one thing is that okay. when you mentioned that it's the uh, legal way of saying, nah, you're, what, you're, what, what this, this counter notice basically says is that this is not a copyright infringement. And that could be for a few grounds. One, yeah, could. could just not have any of the person's copyrighted material at all. Or, in this case, uh, they're alleging that, nah, uh because even though your material is on it, it's fair use, which is yeah. that affirmative defense that we always tend to talk about. So that was this case, is that this is... Yeah, and it, uh, but this led to a huge back and forth about whether or not um, copyright holders, when filing DMCA takedown notices, had to weigh fair use and the potential issues. And the judge eventually decided, okay, yes, they do, but to what extent, because fair use is such a funny thing, if you will, and that you and I, and if we get, you know, three people in a room, we'll never agree on pizza toppings and what fair use is. So it's like, <laughs> these are the rules. Um, right. Uh, another quick note is that the, the actual, like, legal basis for the case ends up coming into play as... Uh, DMCA section uh, 512F, which is that uh, it bans misrepresentation that material is infringing or removed. Uh, so you basically, it, it basically says that if you kind of misrepresent that you own something and that thing becomes disabled yeah. and it's a, it's, a, it, it's a case where uh, the, the material is removed wrongly, you can end up being liable for damages, costs, and insurance yeah. fees, etc. Now, and that 512F is interesting because it specifically says the filing has to be in bad faith. Right. Makes it very clear this cannot be an accident. If you oopsie and do it, it's no harm, no foul. But if you genuinely, knowingly file a bad DMCA, notice if you lie or misrepresent something knowingly, that's a different issue. And that's the core issue at stake right now was did Universal knowingly misrepresent something or mislead something here? And it seems like the EFF and others are having a tough time convincing the courts they did. <laughs> well, it's not only 
there, there is another way to get there, right? It's not only uh, yeah. knowingly, but also there's also the issue of willful blindness. Yeah, willful blindness. Yeah, I forgot. About so that. that's the real angle that they have. I don't think they're going to be able to show that there was an intent to take let's it down. Screw the mom and her let's, baby. Let's, exactly. Uh, you know, let's take down this 20 second video because we have some sort of malicious intent. But if there's a willful blindness to fair use, that's that's an avenue open to the EFF by the district court, which basically said that, you know, we're going to let you go to trial here, but you're going to have to show that there was willful blindness, and that particular decision to allow them to go to trial is what is, is, what is being appealed. And so, uh, yeah, the EFF thinks that you should have to pay damages for a wrongful takedown notice because you didn't consider fair use, and you did it either intentionally or willfully blindly, and Universal is saying, listen, the takedown system just cannot function if there are financial penalties penalties for this type of wrongful takedown. It's meant to help companies with infringement en masse, and uh, you mistakes know mistakes happen. <laughs> the whole the, nothing, there's, this, the, this mistakes happen, and there's nothing in the statute that says we can't do this. And at the same time, even if um, also another point is that um, they also weren't conceding the fair use point. No. Which yeah. saying it would be a contentious issue at trial, which is ridiculous. I mean, what no one is gonna find a mother at a twenty-two second or however long it was. Actually, not sure how long it was, but I know it was short. No one would find this woman uh, liable for a lack of fair use for putting a YouTube no. video of her God, baby no. dancing to a Prince song in the background, you know? barely audible. I'm amazed whatever software they had detected it. I mean, yeah, that's some damn good software. I'm just saying that it's. <laughs> I guess it's just sound legal, uh, yeah. Well, uh, li- sound like litigation technique. To, uh, not to and one, what's the word I'm looking for? Sound legal uh, philosophy or yeah. procedure to just never concede anything. Yeah, and uh, that's, and, you, you never concede anything ever, realistically, even on this. As he's he's being a good lawyer by doing that, basically. He's doing the right thing, but still, yeah, I agree with you completely. That's completely and utterly insane to say that this is not a fair use. You know, it's 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 crazy to me, but that's the uh, argument they're going with. Now, the thing that's interesting is I remember a while back when this case started, the uh, courts had ruled that if Lens is eligible for damages, those damages are effectively nothing because this caused no real harm or disruption in her life. And this would, and they'd be limited. The, the, I believe the court said that they'd be limited basically to her actual damages and not legal fees. So if she were not being supported by the EFF and others in this, there's no way this would be a practical litigation for her. You know what I mean? Right. You have to have damages. And, you have to um, have the damages. So even if Universal ends up losing, they could end up winning if the damages are so insignificant that such litigation is completely impossible or impractical in the future. Right. You know, I did take a class in law school where we would look at famous Supreme Court decisions, and these decisions mostly had very profound national impact. But then when you kind of did a behind-the-scenes look at the parties, which is what this class was all about, kind of behind-the-scenes the actual parties didn't have that much at stake. So sometimes these cases come along where, uh, although these parties have some sort of nominal damages at stake, because otherwise you just can't have a lawsuit, there has to be something at stake. Uh, sometimes you look at these cases and the real driving forces are these, you know, national 
clash of philosophies where you have, you know, an EFF and, a, and Universal be litigating what could essentially be future damages or potential damages or potential liability yeah. issues because, you know, they're the not, EFF is, not is, is very They're not thinking about the case about the class behind them, so to speak. Right. Not only the class behind them, but the but the Universal is, is thinking about the inability to send out DMCA takedown notices en masse because if they're, they'd have to completely rework their system if they were potentially opening themselves up to liability every time they did it incorrectly. So that's what's at stake here. And, and uh, this is another one of those cases where there's a, a mom and her baby, and uh, you, though that might be the named litigant, but really the driving force is the EFF and a, and a, uh, exactly. you know, a national uh, philosophy and a national legal battle you know, playing out through these small, small pawns. I agree. Um, you want to move on the to turtles. the turtles? Let's do the turtles. To the turtles. Well, this this case has gotten very, very interesting for me. We've talked a lot about the turtles lately, um, specifically Flo and Eddie of the turtles. They are the, uh, they're, they're, I guess, the surviving members. They own the rights to the music of the band, including their iconic song from the movie Her Ernest Goes to Camp, Happy Together. I'm sure that was the first time that song was ever aired. It's um, actually uh, my family's song. It's okay. like our... Oh, it's a okay. Sheris. It's a Sheris. That's every single time my family gets together. That's the song that uh, they all sing. That is it's, surprising. Uh, that's, 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 that's incredibly cool and touching. But yet, all I can think of when I hear the song is Ernest Goes to Camp. I'm not kidding. <laughs> that's like my only memory of the song. So it's just amazing how different our you know histories of this song are. Oh, man. But they have been in, locked in litigation with Sirius XM because... I think pretty much I think all of the the Turtles music was pre nineteen seventy two, so the sound recordings were not protected under any federal copyright. Why? Because even back when Congress did, did the original um, copyright acts in nineteen oh nine, they were still that, kicking. Not hands the original. Down the there was one in like the seventeen hundreds. So the second one. No, the, yeah, the second. Oh yeah, the. No, the first one of the previous, you know, 150 years. Fair enough. Um, but yeah, they, they like to kick the can down the road and make sure that any new technologies like sound recording kind of got, you know, a little bit of a roughshod treatment. And they eventually did get around to federalizing it, like I said, in 1972, you know, only after the Beatles, Elvis, um, you know, the recording music industry blew up. Few important artists. Thing. You know, really on the ball. But anyways... So basically, though the uh, the use of sound recordings, uh, pre nineteen seventy two sound recordings, falls under state laws, and Sirius XM had been sued by the Turtles in three different states: California, New York, and Florida, alleging that they were just not paying royalties, and that was a violation of the state laws, not like I said the federal law. Well, they've actually been having some pretty good success with it. Ching. They've been getting some, racking up some court wins here. Every time we hear about Sirius getting one, we're like, yay. It's like, it's like a football game where the, um, the losing team finally scores a touchdown. <laughs> it's like, oh, good, they made the well, end zone. So, yeah, they, they've been having all this success. And uh, then they already all of a sudden, uh, well, not all of a sudden, because obviously uh, the record companies who we're going to talk about here have a stake in this outcome as well. If you think who has sound recordings that are pre-72, who has ownership in those things, well, obviously, the, rec the record labels Universal, have, Sony, know, tons, Warner. Tons of sound recordings, and, you know, you'd think, and I think the Turtles thought this as well, is that both both were on the same side here. Yeah. They both want the same point of law to come through, which is that this California state law protected their sound recordings, which, you know, is going to entitle them to damages. 
So, hey, we're on the same side, and then... Yeah, and it's added I, legal pressure on Sirius at this point. This is great. And yeah. then, you know, I think the, the term friendly fire is a bit of an understatement. Oh. This was like a this was like a friendly nuke. This is like a, uh, a 1984 situation where all of a sudden we're at war with a different kind. We're a different continent. Yeah, it's and basically what happens is the RAAA, the should the record labels swoop in and actually reach a settlement with Sirius. Right. That kind and of so, caught everyone off guard. So no one, this is it's a complicated. Go ahead, yeah, uh, issue it's, here, it's, it's, and I, I'm not sure I entirely grasp it, but I don't think it, anyone it comes, does. I don't think yeah. you're alone. But yeah, it comes down. Sorry, go ahead. But basically, yeah, they swooped in, they scored the settlement, and they're seeking dismissal of the case. But meanwhile, Flo and Eddie and the Turtles had just secured class action status in their lawsuit. And so they're thinking, hey, wait a minute, this settlement that you guys are reaching in a completely unrelated case could interfere with our class action suit and our class's ability to gain, you know, the damages it's owed. So that's where we're hitting it off here is... Basically, now the Turtles are having to make moves against the record labels for sort of interfering in their hard-fought and hard-earned class action lawsuit against Sirius. Yeah, so I think where I was confused and where I imagine most listeners would be confused is that, you know, what do you, what do you mean swoop in? You have to have an interest in, in, in the outcome, right? How, how could one person's lawsuit affect another one's? And it comes down to this class, class certification, right? Because yeah. the Turtles... Uh, can go to a judge and be like, hey, there's this issue, and, you know, each person who was affected by this issue may only have, you know, a few dollars or up to a few hundred dollars or maybe even a few thousands or a few tens of thousands in our case uh, in in damages. So what we'd like to do is make a class, which is the basis for class action, what I just described, when many people all got injured a little bit. So let's make a class here on behalf of anyone with pre-72 sound recordings who would never pay them. Uh, money. So, you know, in theory, that's going to include a lot of people who may have their rights tied up with record labels, either divided or maybe those record labels are allowed to represent uh, others on their behalf. Uh, maybe, maybe those record labels can represent artists, even though yeah, the artists are entitled to, to, to their sound recordings. And this uh, area and gets triply confusion when you start thinking about copyright termination, but I'm just going to lob that grenade in the room and run away. <laughs> <laughs> so so they, they get this class certified by a judge, which means that uh, there, there's a certain period where people can essentially opt out of that, but that passes by pretty quick, and uh, the Turtles can then, as the name plaintiff, uh, get money on behalf of all these other people and then send out the money to those people. But at the same time now, the record companies are coming in and, and saying... Oh, we're going to represent a lot of those people because we have the right to do that. And so it be, the Turtles are like, as you said, like, hey, what the hell? We just had a class certified and you're going to settle out of court for a certain amount of money, which, uh, you know, may not end up in, in the hands of these other artists in to the same degree that we were going to do it. Uh, it may affect our settlement as well. Uh, and so it, you're going to get into some very complex areas of class action yeah. uh, law. And California just law, too, from the looks of yeah, it. Yeah, that I just don't know enough about. But I think yeah. that the, the basics of what is about to happen, uh, I think we've adequately explained. And so they're going to try and stop the settlement from happening. Yeah, they're, uh, basically that's what's happening is they filed a motion to stop the settlement from being funded, basically, from having basically having SiriusXM pay it and complete the settlement. And, mm-hmm. yeah... 
it's 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 interesting here. But I love this. Um the RIAA send out an email, I'll just read the quote here, this is from this article from Reuters. We have great respect for the Turtles and the work they have done to help secure payment for pre-1972 sound recordings. However, their application is without merit and could force the delay of long-awaited payments to artists and labels who created iconic music for generations of fans. So, yeah, it, it, it's... That's like the quintessential backhanded compliment right there. Hey, thanks! Get away. Get a step aside now. Right. They have to, obviously, say something because most lay observers will be like, hey, these people did go to court and they did win and they did do all this stuff for uh, songwriters uh, and you're going to just, you know, step in now. And so they paid, a, paid homage to that. And, you know, they probably have a valid point about it taking longer. It may take way longer for the Turtles to get it. Yeah, but and especially if they're going to... They didn't say anything about the amount <laughs> and how much songwriters would get because you know that complex accounting that record labels can, can do. Yeah, we'll be talking more about it in a minute. <laughs> In a little while. Maybe I should have put that story next. But yeah, it, it's, it's a mess. Well, speaking of stories that are a mess, the uh, judge dismissed the Jumpman lawsuit. Okay. And that's all so there is to remember earlier <laughs> when I said that I really hate... I, I, I had beef to pick with titles. So yeah. I have beef to pick with both titles and, I guess, subtitles or just terms of art that are used. Because this is the first of two cases we're going to talk about today where... The off the not the author the journalist mm-hmm. says that this case has been dismissed. So obviously, I have my own. I have a job to work, and I try to prepare for this podcast as, as much as I can. But you know, the hours in the day are limited. Yeah. So when I read the word dismissed, I I assume that this person knows what they're talking about, and that the case was dismissed on a motion to dismiss, mm-hmm. which is very different from a motion for a summary judgment. A motion to dismiss basically says that. Hey, you take everything that guy's saying in his complaint, and you, you, you know, like, I'll admit it's all true. He still doesn't have a case. That's a very different story than a summary judgment, which is kind of step two in a case. Well, maybe two or three, but step two, which is that hey, there's no issue of material fact here, and if you take everything kind of in the light most favorable to uh, the other guy all the facts that they brought up to back up those claims, they're still not going to win. So even though what they've claimed to have happened would, if all ended up being true, would would uh, would would amount to basically a cause of action, if you have that, then you can survive a motion to dismiss. But if the evidence you end up uh, you know, purporting to show kind of doesn't really end up backing up what you were saying would basically happen once you've got the chance to show some of your evidence. That's, you know, that's more of what happens in a, in a motion for summary judgment. So when I read dismiss, I'll go looking for the complaint and trying to figure out what's legally deficient about the complaint. And then I'll end up 20 minutes later figuring out that, Hey, this journalist just doesn't understand the basics of legal or the basics of litigation. And I, I have to go look for motion for summary judgment. Yeah. And so that is what happened here. Um, yeah. And I have to and, say, and it's especially bad in this article, because I had assumed it was a motion to dismiss, too, because the very last line of this article is, Mossman, the judge, heard oral arguments May 26 on Nike's motion to dismiss. He actually says the words, motion to dismiss. Hmm. 
So just throwing that out there. Yeah. So we, we talked about this. It. We talked about this last, uh, last, last almost a month ago. Last podcast. Yeah. Uh, basically, uh, we were trumped, right? We, we, we were not trumped. <laughs> There's a current events. We were stumped because when I was describing about the different ways in which a, a photograph can be copyrighted, uh, unique in creation, unique in time, and unique in subject, we were like, well, what is the basis for this that would make sense in a lawsuit? And it turns out there really isn't much of a case because yeah. you just, the gentleman didn't own a copyright in the pose that was created. And that's what he was trying to allege is that it was a unique in creation. Uh, I put the ball in his left hand, therefore I now own the concept of Jordan dunking with his left hand. Uh, and uh, that was just thrown out. Like, no, you don't. You don't own a valid copyright, and you need a valid copyright to bring, bring yeah. this uh, case. Uh, yeah. And So yeah, it, just backtracking for one second, this this was ended up being a motion to dismiss. I had, uh, there was the, the next one that we're talking about is a motion for summary judgment. Okay, this took, was a motion to dismiss. Yeah, All I, right. took, I took this opportunity to just kind of get my beef on the table. Because okay, it, well, beef's on the table. Uh, yeah, it, for, just, for the next, it's, it's for a case two down, two down the road. All right, right? that's fair enough. Uh, that's yeah, this was a motion to dismiss. So you, you said you, you couldn't allege that you own basically uh, a valid copy of Yeah. And then basically he had no viable case whatsoever at the end of the day because he didn't hold a valid copyright in the pose because it's kind of hard to hold a valid copyright in a pose, period. And the judge saw through it and dismissed it. It's really that simple. I mean, there's not a whole lot to say. Um, yep. So, Monster Energy Drink. This is uh, uh, pretty interesting here. Because we talk a lot about attorney's fees and how they're awarded. And this is a little additional insight in that. Um, as we know, the Beastie Boys sued Monster Energy after three of their songs, remixes of three of their songs, ended up in a uh, YouTube video slash commercial for an extreme sports event Monster was putting on. The jury, the monster admitted to the infringement, basically, but they had a dispute on damages, and the jury ended up awarding $1.7 million. However, the Beastie Boys came forward and said, hey, uh, that's great and all, we appreciate the award, but we actually owe $2.4 million in legal fees, so this kind of sucks. Um, right, and uh, what ended up being awarded in legal fees was only a fraction of the $2.4 million that the Beastie Boys spent, uh, and... They were awarded about $668,000 and it only ended up coming out ahead by $500,000. So it's just crazy, crazy how expensive litigation is. And this speaks to that. Um, they only come out ahead $500,000 with a two, with, with getting 668 in legal fees. Yeah. And uh, what do they get? 1.4, how many million did they get? 1.7 in, uh, in the initial 1.7. So, uh, you know, the interesting quote in the you know, article you sent was that the judge said that they went for the Cadillac Escalade and not the Honda Civic of legal representation. You're selling part... Monster Energy. Of course you're going to get the Cadillac. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Why, why can't... against a major corporation with Johnny Podunk, sole proprietor at large? That I mean, I, I'm hoping that the article just maybe took that out of context. I or hope so. There were a number of other grounds to reduce it to that number. But I, I think that's preposterous that you that, that a judge can make that sort of call. Yeah, a judge can look to the actual 
you know, work, of course, that was done and say, okay, maybe half of this wasn't really needed or maybe a quarter of this wasn't really needed. But to, to look at the rates chosen, yeah. you know. Especially when you're dealing with a high-profile trial like this. Yeah. I were suing, you know, just some random individual and I came at them with a high-end, you know what I mean? Yeah, be one the, only, the only justification for this judge's statement, if this was a significant part of the basis for the you know, significant reduction in damages, is that this was a slam-dunk case, right? Yeah. This was their song in an unauthorized fashion. There's no substantial similarity issue. Use their song. And so the Beastie Boys knew going into it that, you know, there was a win here. There was no real fair use defense. This was a commercial use of a Beastie Boys song in a commercial endeavor that the Beastie Boys never promote and never would promote. And it wasn't, you know, the the monster had just been in a few uh, wrongful death cases. Like, it was was a slam dunk. So so I I, I imagine or I, I can sympathize with that notion that maybe you went with someone extremely expensive just to punish Monster, but I think it's still a bit of a stretch. It's a bit of a stretch, eh? Now, one thing that may very well happen, and I obviously cannot speak to the relationship between Beastie Boys and their attorneys, is sometimes there's further adjustments made after these types of rulings to keep you know the client from basically losing money or barely scraping by in a case. But that's yeah. not always the case. Not every law firm does that. And certainly the, the larger, more established law firm, the less likely that's going to happen. But still, I have heard of it happening in like auto accident cases and so forth where attorneys will say, okay, if we settle now when I take everything I'm owed, you only get like $1,000. I'm willing to take, have, have done all this for a few a thousand or two less and let you walk away with a more reasonable amount. That makes sense, and uh, but, well, Mayor, but I'm not saying that's going to happen here. I'm saying I've seen it happen. I've actually had it happen to me once. So, you know, so there you go. I actually have an attorney friend of mine who has a rule in all auto accident cases that he will never take home more than his client. So that's, you know, that is that's nice of him. Um, yeah. John, I, I have, I just have to say something about the story. I, just, I think I'm ready to let it go. Oh. Yeah, well, apparently Disney is, too, this next one. Disney is ready to let it go, too. Yeah, they, they're, they're, they're really eager to let it go, apparently, in this one. Um, so, yeah, Disney um, is, has now settled its ongoing lawsuit over the trailer to um, one of the, um, I guess we call it teaser trailers for the movie Frozen. And to do this... We have to go back um, way, way to the beginning of Frozen. Back before it was actually released. And Disney kind of did a teaser trailer that featured Olaf on a frozen lake battling, I think it was a moose in that case, uh, for his nose. And it was hilarious. It was funny. And the only person in the world I don't think it was really, really funny to was the, uh, the uh, one particular filmmaker. Um... I'm trying to find her name here. Oh, it was uh, Kelly Wilson was her name. Sorry, I lost it in the uh, article here. Kelly Wilson didn't find it funny because she had a short film called The Snowman, which pretty much was the exact same premise involving a snowman fighting in that movie with a rabbit on a frozen lake. And the the similarities were pretty darn striking. So, So, yeah, there were this. This was actually the, the I think, believe. 
I believe the dismissal case they were using language is like they dismissed it or it was dismissed after they said, two, they said two it was getting it dismissed. dismissed without prejudice um, because of the settlement. The two sides right. requested to be dismissed, which is how. But I think it also says something about uh, there being deficiencies, and there were two. Uh, I think I believe they'll use the words that Disney failed to dismiss it twice. Yeah, and uh, yeah. you know that of course what that maybe look for deficiencies in the complaint or alleged deficiencies in the complaint. Turns out it was summary judgment, you know, which of course is a much different standard. Uh, yeah, basically they sought dismissal and then a summary judgment and lost both of those. And exactly, and then and then they ended up and then they decided they'd better settle because if this goes to court, it could get ugly very quickly for them. Because even though, even I mean, I'm not going to speak to whether or not it was actually copyright infringement, the similarities were pretty obvious. And getting something like that in front of a jury, as we've learned in the Blurred Lines case, is super risky. <laughs> and Disney's smarter especially, than that. Yeah, especially when you want to produce Frozen 2. Like, yeah, and then today. that's why they did it. In fact, that's the uh, little sub-headline on mine. Is, Frozen 2, officially a go. Parents, get in the shelters. <laughs> Frozen 2 is officially a go. This is like a tornado warning. It's coming. All right. Well, this is a bizarre one here. Um, a new lawsuit against Sony over its deal with Spotify. Um, now, we'll recall back some time ago when Sony was inking its first deals with Spotify. One of the things it did was it took a small equity stake. I think it was like 5% or something like that. I don't remember. Does it say what percent it was? Um, but it took a small, a 6% stake in a company um, in exchange for lower rates. Well, artists, um, in this case, there is a, apparently a company called 19. It is simply 19. That's the name of the company. The numbers 1919. Um, represents a lot of the American Idol affiliated artists, like mm -hmm. such as Carrie Clarkson and Carrie Underwood, are suing, saying that deal was improper because basically it shortchanges artists because, hey, we're not getting our cut of that uh, yummy, yummy uh, steak you took in the company. We're only getting our cut of the royalties. Right, so because they negotiated to obviously have those royalties be smaller than they otherwise would have been in a uh, good faith uh, representation of, of, of the artist. They're like, hey, let's take equity because we don't share that with our signed artists and let's take advertising revenue because we don't share that as uh, either and then you know the rest of it could be revenues which unfortunately we have to pay to our artists and I've got to say Sony has not done a lot to endear themselves here basically their counter argument is there yes this is disadvantageous to artists but yes we also have the right to do this so nanny nanny boo boo mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, that's basically their entire argument. They're saying that the, the, there was nothing improper about the deal. The deal as a whole was fair in their eyes. It's just that the deal as a whole might have been somewhat disadvantageous to the artists. You know. <laughs> and that's what basically is the issue here is was Sony negotiating in good faith on behalf of the artists? And I don't know. Like I said, they're not well, doing the a lot to endear themselves no. and th with their language here. But that's what the artists are alleging now. They want to uh, make it uh, an issue of, you know, you've you basically breached uh, good faith and fair dealing uh, promise that you kind that you make in most contracts. There are, there are certain things that are implied by law in contracts, even though they're not stated in those contracts. Yeah. And one of those is uh, a duty of, of good faith and fair dealing. Uh, 
in, in any contract, which is that you kind of have to execute this this contract in a way that represents the spirit of it and the spirit of uh, of, of good faith negotiation, because you know there, there's lots of different ways that you could take uh, express language and be like, well, I don't actually have to do that. You know, a, a good example of this principle is like, you know, uh, you sign an exclusive uh, representation uh, argument. Uh, you, know, you, you sign an exclusive representation contract to like sell a house. Like, okay, you're the only person who can try to sell my house. I can't even try to sell my house. And then, like, you don't do anything. You're like, sorry, now you just can't sell your house for a year. Like, well, no, you do actually have a duty to try to do it, uh, the, do the thing that you said you would try to do. Yeah. So uh, they're they're going to be alleging that the record labels have the duty of. There, there's a certain good faith responsibility to try and make money for themselves and their artists and not try to structure deals in a way that uh, kind of screws one side of them, which Sony is admitting to doing here. So yeah. it's an interesting line. Yeah, but I think what Sony could counter-argue here is that, well, we had to take the deal this way. It was the only way to get a fair compensation and ensure that Spotify could afford to move forward. That Spotify's business model couldn't support higher royalty rates. So if we were going to get anything... We had to do it this way. So I'm sure they're going to have arguments on their side that shows that, yes, it's disadvantageous to the artist, but it was still the best negotiations we could get. But, yeah, the way they're putting it right now is not really endearing themselves to anyone. I, I, I'm hoping this article, and I, I know Eric Gardner from The Hollywood Reporter. I don't think he's the type of guy to misrepresent things, but I'm hoping that this is kind of a context issue here, too. And that yeah. Sony's not... No. They're also they're also going to say that look this in there's like a hundred different factors that come into making these deals yeah and you know this was not a deliberate attempt to screw the artists this is just kind of how uh, the cookie crumbled in terms of this deal that could be made and uh, yeah. uh, that's when we have the right to kind of do that and not every deal will be perfect for our artists and uh, we're just know, doing the best we can we're, basically we're doing the best we can yeah. it's good faith so our, but good faith doesn't always yield the you know perfect results. So our last story is the. Uh, did you pick this one because I'm Canadian? Was this? Yeah, a, it's Canadian. Uh, yep. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't realize I picked two Hollywood Reporter uh, stories back to back. Oh well, but anyways, moving on. Uh, yeah, the Canadian story. This one is interesting. Um, Google suffered a bit of a setback in Canada, and this has potentially um, global consequences here. Um, the case was brought about by. Okay, you're Canadian. How the heck do you say that name? Equistec Solutions? Um, they so, I want to hear you try that a few more times. <laughs> I, have no, I, I have no idea. I have no idea. E-Q-U-U-S-T-E-F. I would say Equistec. Yeah, I have no idea. Equistec. It sounds like Equistec to me. Oh, maybe it's supposed to be acoustic. Oh, that'd be clever. Like a weird spelling of acoustic? I could be, I could be it. Um, but basically... Oh, I get it. It's acoustic, as in, like, referencing to music, but EQ, as in, you know, that Equalizer. music concept of, you know, your, your EQ. Yeah. And they're, uh, since they're a maker of industrial network interface hardware, maybe they work with EQ, but they were... Maybe. I'm, I'm, I'm grasping the straws here. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyways, go on. Yeah, but anyways... They brought a lawsuit basically against a competitor. Um, they allege that was selling uh, 
in this case, it actually seemed to deal mostly with trademark infringing goods, um, goods that they claimed were from Equistec but or Acoustic and were not. And the Canadian court agreed and ordered Google to officially stop linking to this site within the Google.ca basically domain, basically their Canadian uh, site. Well, acoustic. I'm, I'm running with acoustic. I've decided I like acoustic best. I'm just gonna I'm gonna run that route. Uh, came back and said, "Hey, wait a minute. That's actually not particularly helpful because you know there's hundreds of other Google sites, and you know we're not even the biggest one. The Canadian one's not even the biggest one in terms of traffic. So the court agreed and is now o ordering Google to." Um, Basically, issuing a worldwide injunction borrowing, barring Google from linking to it um, globally, including the United States and elsewhere. It's the first I've heard of such an injunction, a global injunction. And it could obviously have very major impact on copyright because, if theoretically at least, if the court can do it on a trademark issue, other intellectual property issues could be could use this as well, theoretically. This idea of well, a global blacklist, if you will, from Google. Yeah, well, I, I think this is a pretty big defeat. If this yeah. could, if this, if this, if this does move on. Yeah, and uh, it's, it's Google suffered a fair amount of these lately. They also remember the right to be forgotten recently that took effect. A lot of responsibility and a lot of a lot of headache too. I could imagine because. You know, you think the DMCA process is difficult. I can't even fathom the idea of having to determine what is private, what is a good, valid reason for removing private information. Does the, you know what I mean? Yeah. A DMCA you know, is basically a sheet of paper with a bunch of links and some sworn statements. <laughs> you know what I mean? At the end of the day, that's what it is. The right to be forgotten has got to be a much bigger mess. And this is potentially, like I said, I don't want to say devastating, but potentially very impactful to Google because... You have a situation here where a Canadian court is arguing that they have the right to order Google to remove links globally. You know, it's yeah, that pretty seems, potential use. That's a, that's that's. I mean, there's obviously you know, probably some co there are obviously conflict of laws issues. I mean, what if a report says that you know we're going to expressly allow this? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know that many courts that would issue a global a worldwide injunction. I mean, there's like the U.S. Uh, trade court that sometimes tries to flex its muscle beyond its borders. Uh, but the internet and the junctions and legal uh, and courts can sometimes mix for some very strange results, especially yeah. when it comes to IP rights. And, and sometimes you'll have in the U.S. in particular, you have court rulings that have worldwide implications. Like when a U.S. court rules that say, you know, the payment processors can't work with a site or a company. Well, Visa, MasterCard, etc., are global companies, and they're but they're based here in the United States. That pretty much screws them globally, you know. Agreed. So there's it stuff does. like that, but you don't usually hear about these worldwide injunctions. Obviously, very a strange. lot of copyright holders are very excited about this possibility. Um, so I the guess power, the power, and you know. So I guess we'll uh, keep an eye on this. I, I highly suspect there will be an appeal, and this won't be the last we hear of this case because I don't think Google's going to take this one lying down, so to speak. Maybe they uh, need a, a Canadian attorney. Do you know any? I think they need a very talented, young, red-headed attorney living in Washington. And pay him very, Jarrett's very handsomely. Very handsomely. Very handsomely. Like incredibly. 
handsomely I agree. Built. I agree. I think that's a great right. idea. Google, consider that your not legal advice for this day. <laughs> well, Evan, so it, John, huh? Say that again. It was. It was good. I, I think we did. We had, I think this is one of our best podcasts. Yeah, this ever. was good. I think we rolled it through. It. It was nice. Well, you want to wrap it up and uh, end on a high note? Sure. Well, um, you want to I'm going first? to live band karaoke tonight. I haven't been in a month, oh. so uh, I'm going to go sing my heart out. And you got and, your song uh, pick. What song are you doing? These are the key I'm gonna, questions. I'm going to sing. Uh, I'm going to sing "House of the Rising Sun" tonight. Okay. Yeah, yes. if you come to New Orleans and you do the live band karaoke, and if you come to New Orleans on a, on a night where it's going on, I'll take you. I know where it is. Uh, don't do House of the Rising Sun. That, that's that's poor form in New Orleans. Very poor country, form okay. in New Orleans. People come in like, oh, I'm going to do the song and say New Orleans. Everyone's going to love it. And everyone's just like, no. Yeah, we're kind of sick of it, dude. <laughs> Honestly. <Yeah. laughs> it's a little overdone. <laughs> well, uh, there's that. And uh, I, I'm, uh, I'm running a Spartan race in a few weeks. And... Um, that's about it going on in my life. Works good, and uh, I hope you and your family do well. Yeah, we are heading. And, uh, uh, we'll be heading. It won't be interfering with our recording schedule, but we will be uh, traveling next week, going up to the St. Louis area for a little bit to see family and hopefully uh, swing by Holiday World. I've been hearing good things about that theme park. Everyone's telling me it's completely awesome, and my day will be magical and uh, amazing in every way. So I can't wait. <laughs> So on behalf of myself, Evan Sharris, you can yeah. find me on Twitter at Evan Sharris. Spelled like his name in the bottom third. Spelled like that, Evan, E-V-A-N, Sharris, S-H-E-R-E-S. Uh, and, um, you know, you can reach me, uh, esharris at gmail.com, and uh, that's all for me. And I am Jonathan Bailey getting back in frame. I'm from the site Plagiarism Today, which can be found at PlagiarismDay.com, and I'm username Plagiarism Day on all the fun things, Twitter, Facebook, etc., etc. Well, on that note, everyone, thank you very much for joining us. It's been great, Evan, getting caught back up. I'm glad we'll be back on our regular routine next week. So on that note, we will see you guys next week. We would like to give a very special thank you to Pit X for contributing the copyright 2.0 show theme song entitled Me Boo. It is available under the Creative Commons by Attribution License and can be found at ccmixter.org by searching for the word Me Boo. Thank you very much, Pit X. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.